Hello and welcome to Habemus Papam, episode 168, Alexander III. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So last episode, Pope Adrian was in the process of creating an alliance of Italian and other princes to fend off the ambition of the new Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa. But in the middle of that process, he died. So he left to his successor a fairly tumultuous situation in Rome and in the church in general. And if Frederick was hoping for a sympathetic new pope, he wasn't going to get one without a fight. At Adrian's death, there was a clear split in the College of Cardinals, with one group being more pro-Friedrich, led by Cardinal Ottaviano di Monticelli, and the other more in line with the policies of Adrian IV, led by Cardinal Rolando Bandinelli. The two groups were deadlocked for three days, and finally a compromise candidate was floated, but then that fell apart. And then at last, on September 7th, 1159, Cardinal Rolando Bandinelli was elected Pope Alexander III. Now, on the same day, a group of, group of eight pro-Frederick cardinals broke off and elected Ottaviano, who took the name Victor IV, which means we have another anti-pope on our hands. Now, the way it worked out was this. Apparently, when Alexander was elected, he was hesitant about accepting. He didn't agree to it right away for some reason, which prompted Cardinal Ottaviano to yell at Alexander and say he should not accept it and that he should be pope instead, Victor IV. When Alexander heard this, the rest of the cardinals pushed him and he immediately accepted and put on the papal vestments. But once they were on, Cardinal Ottaviano, in a rage, rushed over to Pope Alexander, ripped the vestments off him, and then put them on himself. But in his haste, however, he put the vestments on backwards. No matter, with all the cardinals in total confusion, Cardinal Ottaviano walked out to the gathered crowd, who didn't know all the drama that had happened inside. They chanted the Te Deum, and he said that he was now Pope Victor IV. They didn't know much better, and so the people of Rome were excited about their new pope, but they didn't realize that the person who actually had been elected was Alexander. Alexander and his supporters were besieged, first in St. Peter's, and then when that became indefensible, in a tower in Trastevere, where finally, after a couple weeks, they were rescued by Otto Frangapani of the famous Frangapani family. But before we resolve the situation, we need to take a step back and get to know Alexander III. As was already mentioned, his birth name was Roland, or Rolando, and he was of a noble family from Tuscany. Now, most likely he studied and then taught canon law in Bologna, where he wrote two major works of theology and canon law, the Summa Magister Rolandi and the Sententiae Rolandi. He moved to Pisa at some point. He was ordained a priest there. And it was there that he got to know the Cistercian Bernard, who would um, later become Pope Eugene III. Pope Eugene called him to Rome in 1148 and appointed him the Cardinal Priest of San Marco and the Chancellor of the Vatican. Now, this is where we've met Roland before. He was sent by Pope Adrian IV in his role as Chancellor of the Holy See on an ill-fated trip to Friedrich Barbarossa. We talked about this last week, but then the message sent by Adrian seemed to apply to Barbarossa that he was subservient to the Pope and they derived his power from the Pope. It didn't help that when he questioned Cardinal Roland, the Cardinal replied, From whom do you have the empire if not the Pope? We heard all about the ramifications of this event last week, upping the tension with Barbarossa. And so now the Cardinal Barbarossa least liked just got elected Pope Alexander III. And so that's not going to work. Alexander, of course, suspected that Frederick Barbarossa was behind the whole schism. Victor IV had done the most of any of the Cardinals to ingratiate himself with the emperor. 
and it would make sense that the emperor would try to set up an antipope more in line with his position. And while that wasn't exactly how it happened, the emperor was pretty happily that there was an alternative to Alexander he could support. And so Alexander fled Rome, which was under the control of the antipope, and he began to work to resolve the situation. Now, we've been in situations like this before, and we will see them again. And what usually happens is an intense, prolonged diplomatic effort on the behalf of the two claimants to the papacy to get all the various nations and institutions and religious orders to be on their side. And so Alexander immediately sent representatives across Europe and even to Constantinople. And while these envoys were underway, Friedrich decided that since he was the emperor, he could settle the whole dispute by doing what emperors had done in the past, just call a council. So he sent invitations to bishops to assemble in Pavia to hash everything out. Now Alexander, of course, refused because he knew for sure what the result of the council called by Frederick and dominated Frederick would be ahead of time. Sure enough, in February of 1160, the bishops assembled at Pavia, declared Victor the canonically elected pope and Alexander the antipope. Alexander immediately excommunicated both Victor and Friedrich Barbarossa and dissolved his subjects' oath of loyalty to the emperor. But that was the minority opinion because the results of Alexander's diplomacy started coming in and it turned out most of Europe was actually on his side. John of Salisbury, one of the leading church intellectuals at the time, wrote, It seems to me to make very little difference whom the presumption of the little Pavian convention supports, unless that the election of Alexander, if anyone doubted of it, is confirmed by the very testimony of the opposing party. Likewise, the churches and rulers of England, France, Sicily, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Ireland, Spain, and the Crusader kingdoms in the Holy Land all sided with Alexander. And then added to the weight of those endorsements came the support of the entire Cistercian and Carthusian orders. Victor, meanwhile, only had the support of Frederick, and even some German bishops were starting to wobble, and oddly enough, the monastery of Cluny. Frederick decided uh, to try again and advance Victor's status by calling another council in Cremona, but again, it didn't make much of a difference. In the meantime, with most of the support shifting his way, Alexander III was able to re-enter Rome in June of 1161. He was supported by the Frangipani family, and he immediately set about to try and restore papal authority, but he very quickly had to leave the city again. It turned out that Friedrich had figured out a way to cut off financial support for the Pope and that he was broke. And so people in Rome were clamoring for money, and the Pope was forced to incur debt to help pay it, and he was soon driven from the city and decided to head to France. His boats left the Italian coast, but were soon shipwrecked when a large storm blew them aground. And then after another attempt, he managed to make his way to Montpelier in southern France. Now, I won't go into all the details about the trip to France, save that he went around mingling with the King Louis VII of France and King Henry II of England, and his position grew stronger compared to Frederick's. German nobility and bishops started defecting to Alexander's side, on April 20th, 1164, the antipope Victor IV died in Lucca, Italy, but that still didn't really solve the problem. Those on the imperial side simply elected another antipope, this one a cardinal Guido of Crema, who took the name Paschal III. Now, at this moment, there's a really fascinating story that has to be told, one that I'm sure you are somewhat familiar with. In 1165, Friedrich seems to have succeeded, at least privately, in turning King Henry II of England against Alexander and for the antipope Paschal. Now, the reason is that Henry was having a fight with his former friend and chancellor, the current Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket. Thomas Becket had been appointed by Henry as Archbishop of Canterbury, hoping that in that position he would kowtow to the crown since he was his friend and enforce the king's prerogatives over those of the church. 
And it wasn't to be. The two got in a fight over whether clerics could be tried in civil courts or in church courts, which compounded when the king promulgated the constitutions of Clarendon, which directly usurped papal and ecclesiastical prerogatives in England. So basically the king was saying, I'm in charge. And the church was saying, no, the king cannot be in charge of the church. The church is in charge of the king, or at least separate from the king. And so Thomas, seeing that Henry had it out for him personally, as well as the church's autonomy in England, fled to Flanders in late 1164. Now, Alexander cautiously supported Thomas Becket, but certainly in a diploma- as diplomatic a way as possible. So his own situation was so tenuous, and he wanted to keep Henry on his good side. But he couldn't stand for the way he was teaching, uh, he was treating the church in England. So Henry, after some negotiations with German diplomats, said that at least privately he was looking for a way to support the antipope Paschal. In the meantime, Alexander was invited by the Roman people back to Rome. The Italian people in general, and in the north in particular, they were starting to turn against Friedrich, whose tactics at maintaining imperial rule were brutal and very heavy-handed. In Rome, the new vicar for the city, Cardinal John, vigorously worked to bring about a pro-Alexander sentiment in the city, liberally distributing money and working behind the scenes to make that happen. So much so that the Romans sent envoys to Pope Alexander, who was still in France, to ask him to come back, please. We miss you. Come back. So Frederick now had heard about the Pope's intention to return to Rome, and he did everything he could to try and stop him, even going so far as to pay pirates to try and capture the Pope's boats while they were on their way. He sent an army down into Italy as well, with the anti-pope Paschal in tow, ready to pounce if he could. But despite that, in November of 1165, Alexander was welcomed back into Rome in triumph. But you can probably guess that the situation in Rome is not going to be as easily resolved as all of that. The Roman people were fickle, and Friedrich's forces were not defeated. Friedrich was furious, so he brought his armies into northern Italy for now what is the fourth time. And in 1166, he pressed towards Rome. Victorious in a siege of battles, Frederick arrived at the walls of Rome in 1167, and he besieged the town. Alexander, meanwhile, called on the Normans to help defend the city. It's the same tactic we've seen with many popes at this point. When the empire is against you, you turn to the Normans. Now, Frederick first attacked the area surrounding St. Peter's, which he began to set on fire until his defenders surrendered in order to protect the basilica from total destruction. And Alexander was able to maintain his position in the Frangipani section of Rome, in Trastevere, and he was financed by Norman gifts of money to continue the battle. On June 29th, Friedrich entered St. Peter's Basilica with the Antipope Paschal, who said Mass there and crowned Friedrich again Holy Roman Emperor. It was too much for Rome. The people started turning against Alexander, asking him to resign the papacy. All this conflict was not helping them. He fled the city in August of 1167. He moved south to the papal city of Benevento. But it turns out Friedrich was not able to enjoy his victory. His army was decimated by a particularly bad form of malaria, which killed up to 20,000 of his soldiers. And fearful of the destruction wrought by the disease and seeing it probably some sort of divine initiative, Friedrich fled north. On his way, seeing his weakness, the cities of northern Italy turned against Frederick. Banding together, they formed what was called the Lombard League, and they resisted imperial troops that came against them. Faced with a weakened army and concerted resistance from this new Lombard League, Friedrich returned to Germany disguised as a servant to prevent his being captured by the angry Italians. And then, on top of all that, his anti-Pope Paschal died in September of 1168. He looked around for a new candidate for the position of antipope. The opponents of Alexander found John, the abbot of a Hungarian monastery, and elected him the antipope Callistus III. 
So we're back where we started. Friedrich has a new antipope, Alexander is in exile still, but something different has happened. Northern Italy has come to the defense of the pope and has managed to seriously embarrass the emperor. In celebration, they built a new city called Alessandria after the pope in celebration and to thumb their nose at the emperor. Now, things were still not going well for Alexander's friend Thomas Becket. Becket had returned to England thanks to some skillful negotiations between the papal diplomats and King Henry in 1170, but things got stirred up again when Henry had his son crowned by bishops other than Becket. It was always the privilege of the Archbishop of Canterbury that he got to crown the new king, and so he excommunicated those bishops. Now this infuriated Henry, who reportedly shouted out, what sluggards, what cowards have I brought up in my court? who care nothing for their allegiance to their lord, who will rid me of this meddlesome priest? Four of his knights decided that they would be the ones to rid him of that meddlesome priest, and so they went and found Thomas Becket in the Canterbury Cathedral at the altar. Now a monk who was hiding at the time recorded what happened next. He writes, The murderers followed him. Absolve, they cried, and restore to communion those whom you have excommunicated, and restore their powers to those whom you have suspended. He answered, There has been no satisfaction. I will not absolve them. Then you shall die, they cried, and receive what you deserve. I am ready, he replied, to die for my Lord, that in my blood the church may obtain liberty and peace. But in the name of Almighty God, I forbid you to hurt my people, whether clerk or lay. Thomas Becket was put to death at his cathedral, and shortly afterwards, in 1173, he was canonized by Pope Alexander III. Now, it's skipping ahead in our story, but in 1174, Henry himself repented of his role in St. Thomas Becket's martyrdom. He did public penance prescribed by Alexander III in the Canterbury Cathedral, allowing the monks there to strike him with branches as he walked to the cathedral barefoot. Back, though, to Friedrich and Alexander. By 1174, Friedrich decided it was time for him to head into Italy again in order to settle the dispute with Alexander once and for all. Alexander had been conversing with the Byzantine emperor, who had hoped that he would be recognized as the one true emperor and who would then help him against Friedrich and end the schism with the Orthodox churches. Now, not too much came of this deal. Alexander was wary of Byzantine power being asserted in Italy again because at one time they had controlled southern Italy and Sicily and had controlled the papacy for a while, and so he didn't want to give them too much. But it did make Friedrich nervous that he was flirting with the Byzantines. In September of 1174, Friedrich sent his army south, hoping to symbolically destroy the new city of Alessandria. He failed, and once spring came around, the troops of the Lombard League were arrayed to oppose him. Friedrich then tried negotiations with the Pope. His anti-Pope Glickstics was basically forgotten anyway, and northern Italy was stronger than he had realized. And he figured that if he could turn the Pope against the Lombard League, he would be more successful militarily. But it wasn't to be. The Lombard army attacked the imperial troops on May 29, 1176 at Lingano in northern Italy. Friedrich's troops were utterly defeated and Friedrich himself had to run away on foot. He sued for peace and eventually a peace treaty was signed in Venice of 11, in 1177. And there, Frederick Barbarossa submitted himself finally to Pope Alexander III, repudiating his anti-Pope Callistus III. Now this is what they agreed to, and this is the actual text. The Lord Emperor Frederick, according as he has received the Lord Pope Alexander as his Catholic and Universal Pope, so he will exhibit to him due reverence, just as Frederick's Catholic predecessors had exhibited to Alexander's Catholic predecessors. He will also exhibit the same reverence to the Pope's successors, who will be canonically enthroned. 
And the Lord Emperor will truly restore peace as well to the Lord Pope Alexander as to all his successors and to the whole Roman Church. Every possession and holding, moreover, whether of a prefecture or of any other thing which the Roman Church enjoyed and which he took away to himself, he will restore in good faith. The possessions also which the Lord Emperor shall restore, he will also aid in retaining. Likewise, also to all the vassals of the church, whom by reason of the schism the Lord Emperor took away, the Lord Emperor will release. Moreover, the Lord Emperor and the Lord Pope will mutually aid each other in preserving the honor and rights of the church and the empire. So peace at last. Callistus III was arrested eventually and submitted to Pope Alexander in 1178. Alexander, for his part, forgave him and even appointed him to a pretty important position in the governments of the Papal States, but that didn't appease all of his followers. In September of 1179, the remaining dissatisfied anti-Pope followers chose Lando di Cese, who took the name Innocent III. He'll be another anti-Pope for Alexander. But he only had one castle to his name, and eventually even that was taken away from him, and he was shut up in a monastery to live the rest of his life in penance in January of 1180. And with that, that should do us for anti-popes for now. But we need to take a step back briefly to 1178, because if all this wasn't enough, we still haven't touched one more huge thing that Alexander undertook. In 1178, after negotiations with the Roman Commune and the Senate, the Pope one more time was welcomed back to Rome. Once there, he called together an ecumenical council, the Third Council of the Lateran, or Lateran III. The council contained over 300 bishops, and met for several sessions in March of 1179. Now, the most important decision reached for our story going forward was that the council changed the requirements for papal elections. From henceforth, and in fact, for the rest of this podcast, with a brief exception in 2005, to be elected pope, you would need a two-thirds majority in the College of Cardinals. Now, it's interesting, when you read the text there, it's another difference between what is decreed and what Nicholas III had declared a while back. It's not just the cardinal bishops who are in charge of electing the pope, like Nicholas II decided, with the rest of the cardinals assenting. It's two-thirds of all the cardinals who choose the pope. Like I said, this precedent is going to last until today, with the exception, as I mentioned, of the 2005 conclave, but more on that in about 90 or something episodes. Now, the rest of the council was likewise reform-minded. It decried sodomy, simony, violations of celibacy, bishops living like princes. In fact, here's one cool decree from the fourth canon of the council. Therefore, we decree that archbishops on their visitations of their diocese are not to bring with them more than 40 or 50 horses or other mounts. According to the differences of diocese and ecclesiastical resources, cardinals should not exceed 20 or 25, bishops are never to exceed 20 or 30, archdeacons 5 or 7, deans and their delegates should be satisfied with two horses, nor should they set out with hunting dogs and birds, but they should proceed in such a way that they are seen to be seeking not their own, but the things of Jesus Christ." Let them not seek rich banquets, but let them receive with thanksgiving what is duly and suitably provided. So, no massive entourages for bishops, no more than 40 or 50 horses. That's it. You would think that after a massive conflict with the emperor for anti-popes and ecumenical council and the canonization of Thomas Becket, we would be done. But no, there is more. First, on one rather unrelated note, Alexander was a huge supporter throughout his papacy of university education, having himself taught in universities in his younger days. He fought for scholastic freedom. He helped remove barriers for the poor to attain an education. Teaching positions, likewise, he ensured would be open to anyone who was qualified, not merely those with connections. Horace Mann notes that even the anti-church philosopher Voltaire in the uh, heady days of the Enlightenment, thought Alexander III had done more for humanity than any other man in the Middle Ages. 
Now in 1179, the Roman people drove the Pope out of Rome again, which coincided with the election of anti-Pope Innocent III we mentioned a little while ago. Alexander would never return to Rome. He died instead in Civita Castellana on August 30th, 1181. His papacy was the seventh longest in history. His funeral was unfortunately fraught with peril as the people of Rome, goaded on by the rebellious Roman commune, threw stones and spat on his coffin as it was being transported to the Lateran Basilica. He was buried in the Basilica of St. John Lateran nonetheless and was succeeded by Pope Lucius III, and we will talk about him next week. Thank you for listening to Habemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.